In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Cami here. Today on Money Tales, we talk with Jim Morocco. Jim started his career doing temp jobs out of college and couch surfing. He eventually made his way to Google, where he became the VP of finance and corporate controller. Jim grew up talking about money with his family around the breakfast table. This instilled a financial confidence that enabled him to leverage the little breaks in life and catapult his career. This is Sandy. You should know that Jim is a reformed pessimist who now describes himself as a raging optimist. His wife was a big influence on his changed outlook. They have faced many challenges, including a potentially life-shortening one with United Front that has allowed them to beat the odds. Jim is an engaging storyteller. He shares how he navigated a lot of unexpected financial situations by focusing on what matters most to him and to his family. Jim learned very early on that you need to have a budget in place and you should always save for a rainy day. Putting these lessons into practice allowed Jim to retire for the time being to take care of his family. Money Tales is brought to you by Asperient, a leading independent wealth management firm where we passionately believe in the importance of having money conversations. At the end of the interview, please stick around for some reflections, including how to plan for the unexpected. Now, on our interview with Jim Morocco. Jim Morocco, welcome to Money Tales. We're so glad you're here with us. Thank you. Excited to be here. To get our conversation started, will you please tell us the journey of your life, focusing on two to three pivotal moments that make you the person who you are talking with us? Sure. I grew up born and raised in San Diego. I would say it was a pretty nice middle-class neighborhood. There were six of us. I have three older sisters. My father passed away when I was a kid, so that was obviously influential in uh, my childhood. And so I was essentially raised from then on by women, very strong uh, and to this day successful women. I'd say that's certainly been influential in my life. And then I uh, went away to college at Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo. Had a great experience there, very well-rounded and fulfilling experience. When I graduated from there, my intent was to go back to San Diego, uh, where I love, but the job market was not was not very strong. This was the early 90s and there was still some lingering recession. So I had some friends from school who lived in the Bay Area and I thought it would be a fun place to start a career. And my intent was to go up there for a couple of years, get my career going, and then of course head back to San Diego. So that was the intent. But here I am, I don't know, 25 plus years later, still here and still enjoying it. The, I'd say I came up to the Bay Area. I did not have a job. I had about 500 bucks in my pocket. And 
no debt, which I was glad about. Thanks, mom. And I had a couch to stay on at my friend's uncle's place. I was grateful even to that. Now I kind of look back and I thought like, I didn't even know my friend's uncle and he took me in as a, as a renter. Those are those, those little breaks you kind of need along the way. So from there, I like to say I sort of fell into the tech industry, started out as a temp and worked my way up from there and worked at a series of different tech companies for about 10 years. And then I got a break, a big break really, in being hired at Google in 2003. It was not yet public. I wouldn't characterize it as a startup. I mean, there were about a thousand people there when I started, but I ended up working there for 14 years and there were like 70 or 75,000 people when I left. So it exceeded all of my expectations that I was hoping for when I started there. It was really a genuinely wonderful and transformative experience, not, not even just career-wise. While at Google, I, when I left there, I was a vice president of finance. I had worked my way up from a senior financial analyst and I had become the corporate controller there for several years. And then I basically retired. I kind of say quasi-retired because I, I don't feel like I'm, I'm done yet, but certainly I, I'm taking in, in the middle of an extended break, spending time with family. And that's sort of the other big influential part of my adulthood is my relationship with my wife, who I actually met through work when she was interning at one of the companies that I worked at. And she has cystic fibrosis. And so that has been an impactful part of our lives. Just you know, learning how to work and build a relationship and then and ultimately have start a family with you know when somebody's dealing with a, a chronic and serious illness just sort of adds a whole other layer in onto to life and you sort of think about what kind of job you do and do you buy a place where do you buy a place what kind of place is it is it near healthcare and and then obviously starting a family is like a whole other it's a serious and big decision for anybody it just becomes even more so when there's sort of that specter of what is my wife's life expectancy going to look like long term? And how do you think about that? And especially as somebody who lost a parent when I was young, and I you know, could understand what potentially my kids were facing. So in a nutshell, that is probably the most influential parts of my journey. Wow, Jim, that's a lot. That's a lot. How old were you when your dad passed? You mentioned you were young. Sure. I was 11 and my sisters are all a little bit older than me. So my oldest sister was off to college by then. It was traumatic. But if I think about it through the lens of money and having to deal with personal finance, I am forever grateful that you know how well my mom was able to handle it, that she was comfortable dealing with money. And, uh, and we always, as a family, talked about money openly. I would say it's, it's almost like a, a little bit of a running joke if you talk to all of our various childhood friends, how our family was the one that would talk about money stuff around the Sunday breakfast table. And so we were very comfortable talking about money. And it was, but it wasn't talking about money just for the sake of talking about money. It was really all driven by a sense of you have to be independent when you're in adulthood that you shouldn't live your life dependent on other people because you just never know what's going to happen in life. My parents, both my parents grew up poor during the depression. And so, you know, of course, anybody from that generation is sort of almost scarred by it, but they you know, sort of imparted a lot of lessons on us. And so my mom was, I thought, you know, in, in, in retrospect was sort of 
formidable in how she handled things and making sure that we had what we needed. I like to say that we had everything that we needed, but we didn't purchase anything full price. It was always on sale. We always used coupons. It was almost a blood sport for my mom. Like how many coupons could she use? Even before my dad died, he had some health issues. And so there were some things I, you know, I look back and my parents purchased us all a life insurance policy when we were young children, a whole life policy. Because my dad, when he developed either heart disease or diabetes, and he wanted to get some more life insurance, and he couldn't, couldn't qualify. So they decided, you know what, if we get these policies for, for the kids, like the kids don't have any health issues, no matter what, they'll always have some life insurance money to cover the cost of like burial and all that kind of stuff, and, and then some. And it seemed weird to us. I can confidently say I was the only kid I knew amongst all my friends who had a life insurance policy. But that kind of worked out later on because we actually were able to cash that out in adulthood and use that towards a down payment. So it ended up being like a very shrewd thing on the part of our parents. But I think they looked at it as like they were kind of learning these things the hard way because my dad did have life insurance through his work, but it wasn't as much as they wanted. Jim, did the family conversations about money occur before your dad became ill? Yeah, before, after, ongoing. I'm kind of struck to this day, and this is why I think this podcast is so great. It was so natural for us to talk about money. But then as I got to adulthood, I started to meet people who had never talked to anybody ever about anything money related. And a lot of it was just sort of like really basic stuff, not some sort of advanced investment techniques or anything like that. It's, it's like understanding the basics of how a credit card actually works. So yeah, I think there was an element and maybe it also helped that my sisters are all older than me. So they, they were going through a lot of these life events, like going to college, buying a car, getting married, buying a house, having kids. And so with each of these life events, we would discuss the things that you go through, right? Like in terms of like, what's the smartest or the wisest way to, to spend the money. And in some cases, the conversations weren't necessarily about like tactically, how do you spend the money, but more, how do you think about how much risk do you want to take on or how much, how much of your income do you want to spend on that mortgage? Because there, you know, people will tell you, oh, just buy the biggest, most expensive place you can get. And because you'll grow into it, right? Yeah, on average, over many years, that's the right thing to do until you meet people who had unfortunate timing and that they stretched, bought that place. And then two years later, the two people, one gets laid off and then another gets laid off. And they're like, you know what? No one told us that could happen. And then now they have their regrets. So I felt very empowered in terms of making money decisions, as well as had ingrained in me the sense of practicality right? Like spend money on the stuff that's important to you. Don't waste it on stuff that isn't. And because that will also help you build and maintain that independence as well. So Jim, I love this perspective of your friends having trouble having money conversations and you really thinking this is odd. When you got to college, how did you handle it? Did you bring up these conversations with friends and learn that they weren't really understanding of how some of the basics work? Were you able to impart some of your wisdom on your friends? One big thing I loved about college was just being on my own and having to navigate that. And it's scary at first, but then I felt over time it was empowering and I loved it, especially after I like made some friends. And 
we, we would have some money conversations in college, but your world is like so small there. You don't have a lot of commitments financially. You have, obviously you have your tuition is big. I went to a state school. Of course, our mom was like, you can apply to any school you want as long as it's a UC school or a state school. <laughs> and back then, the tuition was quite affordable. But we would have conversations and some of them were just like, people, some of my friends were just clueless. They had no idea how much money they were spending. Whereas like before I left for college, I had to sit down and write out a budget about what were my living expenses going to be. So my mom's agreement was she would pay for tuition. That was very important to her. She wanted us to go to college and she was going to pay for that tuition. And then she helped out with the basic living expenses. And as I like to say, she covered my, my rent and enough food so I would not starve to death. Anything beyond that, I needed to get a job and come up with that money myself. So if I was going to do any activities, I was going to join any clubs, I was going to buy any beer or any of that, those kinds of things, I was going to have to get a job and pay for that myself. I had friends who were totally on their own with you know, paying for tuition on their own and their own student debt. I had friends who had no idea how they would just get a check from their parents every month and always seemed, seemed like they had plenty of money. And so I, again, I look back now and I think uh, there were sort of those of us who had a budget and those of us who didn't. And I almost think those parents who, and, and I can understand where the, the parents, because my wife's family is a little bit like that, like focus on education, focus on getting your degree, we don't want to distract you with other things that might stress you out. But I think that it's such a, you're missing such a golden opportunity for people to learn about life. And you, even though you're a college kid, like you're an adult and you need to act like it. There's my bias. So you're in college, you're focused, you're, you're becoming financially independent. You're drinking beer. <laughs> On occasion, yes. With your mom covering the basics. <laughs> and then you graduate into a bummer economy. And you find yourself renting a couch. What was that feeling like? It sounds funny, but I loved it. I remember thinking that the night after I graduated from college and the place I was renting with three other people, they had all left and I was the last one there and I was sleeping. I had my little pickup truck packed up with all my worldly belongings. I was sleeping on a sleeping bag on the floor in an empty condo and thinking, this is awesome. I can't wait to get out there. Now, one, one thing I think that helped, so I moved up to the Bay Area, moved into my friend's uncle's place. And then the first thing I did, because I didn't have a job, was I signed up with a temp agency. And so and that was something I had done a couple of times before as like summer jobs. Again, my mom kind of pointed me in that direction. I really can't think of a lot of other friends who would sign up with temp agencies, but they were actually good paying jobs. They're often mind numbing. You know, you're filing, filing stuff all day or one job I pushed, I worked in a mail room and I pushed the mail cart around. And I look back with some of that stuff as fondly as like, those are good work experiences that help build humility and you appreciate the role that everybody plays in some of these companies. But I remember I was making 10 bucks an hour. I swear my expenses were equivalent to 11 bucks an hour. I remember over the course of like six months building up credit card debt of like $500 total, which is the first time I'd ever had any credit card debt. And I just couldn't quite pay that off. And it just killed me to pay whatever the extraordinarily high interest rate I was paying on that credit card at the time. But 
So I, I worked that first temp job for six months. You know, effectively, I got fired, I think. I mean, basically, they just didn't renew me after six months. So I was back looking for that, that next temp job. And I had signed up with the agency again, had two opportunities. And I like to tell the story about sort of the randomness of life. But one was at a well-known tech company, and it was in a finance group some sort of administrative role in a finance group, which is where I wanted to go, like a corporate finance role. And it paid $16 an hour. And at this other role, it was kind of in a marketing group. And I really hit it off with the guy who would be my boss. And it just sounded like a much more interesting job, even though it wasn't in finance, but it paid $15 an hour. So I thought, you know, I really hit it off with this guy who'd be my boss. I want to take that role. But the other one was a dollar more an hour, one dollar more an hour, and that was meaningful to me. And so I called him up and I said, hey, look, I got this other opportunity, but if you can match it, you can match $16 an hour, I will take your job. And I think back now that he must have kind of almost laughed probably on the other end of the line because he just, he pauses, I don't hear anything. And he said, I think we can make that happen. And so I took that job, but here's where life takes these twists and turns. I worked as a temp for a couple of months there and was ultimately kind of converted over to permanent status. That boss was wonderful. He ended up being like this fabulous mentor for me early in my career. So, and then at that company, I did some work for this one vice president who liked the work that I did. He left, became CEO of the startup and recruited me over there to do similar work for him there that I, was, I had done for him at this previous company. And I thought, wow, startup, that sounds cool. So I jumped at it, really not thinking it through, but whatever, I was young and, and it just sounded exciting. At that company, it got me into the internet industry, which even though at the time it was 1997, we thought we missed the big boom because like Netscape had already gone public and Yahoo had gone public. And we're like, ah, oh, well, still seems like there's some meat on the bone here. Anyways, it, uh, at that company, I met my wife. That's where she was interning. Later on, we got acquired by this big search engine company called Lycos, which probably nobody remembers today. Wow. Memories. Yeah, right. And so now fast forward a, a few more years, and I think that Lycos was probably a keyword on my resume when I applied for a job at Google. Because when I interviewed there, back in those days, Google had you meet like with a million people. It was obnoxious, but I was meeting with this one executive and he's like, he said to me, he's like, who do you know here? And I said, what do you mean? He's like, well, everybody knows somebody. That's how you get an interview here. Cause it was so, it was so popular at that point to try to get an interview. And I said, I, I don't know anybody. I just sent my resume into the website and he, he leans back and he says, whoa, talk about a needle in a haystack. And I thought, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Fortunately, I, I got the job. And at the end of that year, the recruiter for the finance team sent a note out to all of us. And at that point, you know, at the end of that year, I don't know, there were maybe 30 of us or so in the finance team. And half of us had started that year. He said he, he had received 10,000 resumes just for finance roles at Google. And that's where I understood, oh, yeah, that's what he meant by needle in a haystack. But then I kind of look back and think that $1 an hour. My life would have been totally different had my old boss not matched the $1 an hour. I mean, my, not just work life, my whole life would be 
would be different. I would argue, had you not had the chutzpah to negotiate for that extra dollar, your life might be very different. Indeed, indeed, right? And and any amount of money is, it's meaningful. It was very, very much meaningful to me. That was the difference really kind of between me having that credit card bill and, and not having that. And Jim, when you started at Google, were you married at this point? I was. I had been married the year before. And I remember thinking, so the, the companies I had been at, I had had you know, really good experiences at all the places I had worked, worked with a bunch of wonderful people. And, but I had, I had spent sort of two to three years at each company. And frankly, all those companies I had worked at, they were often like the third place company in whatever kind of industry or market they were in. And I wanted to be at a company that was a first place company and one that I could kind of stay and grow at for a while because I knew we were keen on ultimately like buying a place in the coming years and starting a family. And so one thing you learn when you're at the third place company is that you spend all your time thinking about what the first and second place companies are doing. And when you're at the first place company, you're thinking about what can we do differently to grow our space. So that was important to me. And, and that's one of those sort of expectations I was hoping for that, that Google clearly exceeded. I, I knew it would be a, like a cool place to work and that they were doing well, but I, I never had any inkling it would grow into the, the massive juggernaut it is today. Where did money play in the decision to go work for Google? So I had been at another startup before that and it crashed and burned. So I needed, I needed a role. I needed a job. And I interviewed first at Yahoo and just really did not hit it off with any of the people interviewing, even though it was, I was a good fit for the role. And I remember coming home and saying to my wife, I was like, if they offered me a job, I'd want to go meet some more people before I said yes, even though I really needed that job. Then I interviewed at Google, like literally just a couple of weeks later, and I hit it off fabulously with all four people I interviewed with. And three of those four people I have talked to in recent months. So I'm still friends, still friends with all those people. And so at the time, you know, the Google, the salary was lower, but I remember thinking like that didn't even matter. It was between like the company and the people. I was willing to make that bet and then to also bet on myself. Jim, you have told us about this amazing background where you talked about money at a very young age. How was it when you met your wife and then when you got married from her background? Was it just seamless? Did you have to work on this? How did you bring this into your marriage and your family? Sure. So she, her, her family does not talk about money. It's not taboo. They're not against talking about money. It's just not a, a subject that they bring up very much. So it was really eye-opening for my wife. You know, when we were first dating and we'd be visiting with my family and we would be talking about all these money subjects. And, and it wasn't just one time, it was almost every time we'd get together, it comes up. And to this day, so that was one big experience in learning that not everybody talks about money. And the other big aspect of that is that my wife has cystic fibrosis and it's a uh, genetic disease, it's a chronic disease, and it ultimately results in lung damage. When we first started dating, she was 21 and the median life expectancy for someone with CF was around 32 years old. And so, so you know, it's interesting to about, you start thinking about money situations and she gets her first job after school and you're, you know, you're signing up, you're filling out the paperwork and there's that box to check, like, how much do you want to contribute to your 401k? 
And I remember thinking, wow, okay, the cold hard math here is, is that why would she put money into her 401k? But the human being part of me was like, yeah, go for it, right? And I tell people this all the time that before I met my wife, I naturally had a pessimistic bent to my personality. And after I met her, I became an optimist, raging optimist. And I can't explain why, but I do like to tell people life's better as an optimist. I just think it sure beats the alternative. So, so you start having these conversations a little bit. You, you, you have them, but you don't dwell on them. But there was also reason for optimism, even as it related to cystic fibrosis. That median age had been, had been growing as they learned more about the disease and developed more drugs and therapies. So there was reason for optimism, but it led to some heartfelt conversations about, you know, as we would kind of think about the jobs that we would, the next job that we would take, where is it located? You know, I can kind of fast forward to later in my career at Google and I, my boss, who was also my friend, offered me this fabulous opportunity to work in Europe and do an expat assignment. And it would have been great for my career. It would have been like an amazing just life experience. But at that point, you know, my wife's health had started to go downhill. And I told him like, you know what? I can't thank you enough for the offer, but I, ha I have to turn it down. But I don't have any regrets because I, ma I made this decision years ago. Before I ever worked at Google, I made this decision when I met my wife and when I married my wife and I was at peace with it. And so he was, of course, super understanding. And these are just kind of the, the trade-offs. You know, and a big part of that was like we wanted to be close to good healthcare and her doctors and her family. And uh, again, to this day, no. No regrets, although I think it would, would have been really cool to, to do that. So it sounds like money plays a big role in your marriage, as does your wife's health situation. It sounds like they're all intertwined together. Absolutely. I mean, when we were thinking about, as I mentioned earlier, about the topic of getting a mortgage, buying a place. And I remember thinking that when we were first buying that place, we, we were looking for like a small house. And we were going to have to really stretch. It was a competitive market at the time, real estate market. And I remember thinking, well, we're going to have to really stretch to get into one. And that was making me uncomfortable uh, thinking about it because I, I, you always think about like, frankly, I didn't want to overly rely on her income in order to just pay the mortgage. So we decided that let's get a condo that costs less. And in fact, we got one that needed, that was like a fixer upper so that we, you know, got even a better deal on it and we fixed it up over time. There was a conversation with, as it relates to what the jobs that we're doing, there's a conversation around making big purchases like a home. And then, you know, the biggest conversation of all was around whether or not to have kids. We both wanted to, but we were both worried about in that, you know, I can't put words in my wife's mouth, but I, you know, I'm sure she was concerned about like, well, what happens if I'm not there to see them grow up? And then I can relate to, again, my having lost a parent when I was young and sort of the impact that can have, even though I consider myself to have had a very happy childhood, that was still obviously a traumatic event. So we, we did decide to have kids. We both really wanted to have kids. And so we go talk doctors. And one of the aspects of cystic fibrosis is that it can be very hard on a woman's 
health if having kids, just going through the pregnancy process. Some women with CF do it and others, it can sort of uh, accelerate some of the, the issues with, with the disease. So we decided that we weren't going to do it kind of the traditional way. And then it became, do we go adoption or do we go surrogacy? And so we decided to go the surrogacy. We did research. We started to go the sur- surrogacy route, which is quite expensive at that time. So this was 2006. First of all, there was kind of shocking how little structure there is about around the world of surrogacy. The estimates that you got was that it was going to cost, it was going to typically range in the, in the cost of $80,000 to $100,000. And so now at that point, I was doing well at Google and I thought, you know, this is something I wanted to prioritize in terms of spending that money. And that's one of the, one of the many reasons I'm grateful to Google is that it allowed me to be able to afford that. We went through that process, which was amazing, had these crazy ups and downs. It's weird. We went and met the woman who ultimately was our surrogate, like at Baja Fresh and had a burrito. (laughs) And it's like, what do you talk about? This is weird. And there's exactly nobody that you know who's had that conversation. But what did you talk about when you met your surrogate? This woman who's going to like put herself at physical risks that you may have children. You know, it's, it is sort of this uh, crazy life experience, but uh, she was amazing. I mean, she was our, she was our, you know, bridge to having a family. And so there was a whole process there. We found an agency in another part of California that was like a surrogacy agency and there was a woman running it and she was really cool and walked us through the process. And there was like a lawyer that you use. There's like, there's an actual contract. This is a business relationship. It sounds weird, but there's very much a a business relationship and there's there's a contract. And one of the clauses in the contract is that if you have twins, it's $5,000 per extra kit. So little equity kicker. Yes. I was like, but I'm dollar cost averaging down on the cost of these kits. I'm like, absolutely. We're definitely doing two. And so, you know, and I even kind of thought like, well, yeah, maybe a third, but then we were like, no, 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 forget that. Two was plenty. It kind of made it really real to see all these things outlined in, in the contract. And then you, you set up an escrow account. There's a lawyer who sets up an escrow account for you. And then you put money in the escrow account. And then as the surrogate would have expenses and stuff, she would submit them and then get paid out of the escrow account. Everything, everything worked out well. We were incredibly lucky in that she lived pretty close to us. So my wife went to like all of her appointments. Uh, that is atypical. Like often they, they're in another state. You know, some people just, they just show up the day that their kids are going to be born. And so we were really fortunate in that regard. And we had this wonderful experience. Everything worked out great. So Jim, I think this is fascinating. I think when most couples decide to have children that raises automatically some money conversations in the marriage. This is a whole different situation. How are you and Larissa having these conversations? You know, a lot of it's prioritizing things in your life that you spend money on. So we're like, okay, well, we need to, we need to save money up, you know, a lot of money up for this surrogacy process. And, and it goes on, you know, the whole process took like a year and a half. You're not quite sure like exactly how long it's going to take. And other things come up along the way that you're like, okay, are you prepared for those? But we were well prepared because even if you go the adoption route, it can still cost a fair amount of money. And I think we just always took 
the approach of like, we always need to have a sizable buffer, sort of living expenses buffer for the unknown. Like what happens if Larissa has to, she gets sick and she has to quit her job kind of unexpectedly. What do we do? Or you go, you know, even going on disability that helps, but it's only a fraction of what you would be typically making. So it's always thinking about these kind of what if scenarios, which was exactly what I was doing in my job. So I was quite comfortable doing that. But even though my wife did not regularly talk about money issues, she was absolutely involved in all of these decisions, you know, and it was really kind of more about less about the specific dollar amounts and more like where, where do our priorities lie? And so when we bought that condo, we made sure one of the reasons we bought a fixer upper is because we wanted a three bedroom condo that we're like, if we have to stay here the rest of our lives and we've got kids, we want, is it plenty big enough that we're not going to feel like some sort of compulsion to want to move to a bigger place and then have to stretch ourselves financially. And so for many years, we were glad that we, that we made that decision. It just is sort of like you make these decisions money-wise that lower your stress level on those things, family-wise, health-wise, those things that you can't control and that naturally are going to create some stress in your life. The, to me, like the money part was that was something that we could control and certainly influence. And so we're like, okay, well, let's make sure that that's not adding to the stress. If anything, that is reducing our stress level. I think that's great learning. I think it's an insight for our listeners that there is a tendency sometimes to not be mindful and moving the goalpost, to use that analogy, and not even intentionally. It just keeps happening. But if you are mindful, you can reduce the stress as a result. And that's really important to be mindful of. For sure. For sure. And so it's something that we still talk about to this day. There's more life decisions coming up for us. Jim, you mentioned that joining Google was a transformative experience and not just career-wise. What were the transformative experiences? Career-wise, it was fabulous. There was all sorts of opportunity being at a company growing that much and that quickly, working with lots of just amazing people. There were a lot of really smart people there, and I honestly felt like they made me smarter. I learned things about myself. I felt like professionally at my other jobs, I could bring my B game and still do well. Whereas day one at Google, I felt like if I don't bring my A game, I don't even, won't even last here. Um, but then after a while, I was not just lasting there, but I was getting good feedback and I was doing well and I was being offered more opportunities. And so I started realizing like, oh, I was even more capable than I thought, right? So you kind of learn that about yourself, like what you can handle and what you can juggle. And another thing is Google, it's an unorthodox company. Most compelling to me was they, they were willing to take chances on people, regardless of your background. And so I, I am sort of an obvious example in that I became the corporate controller at Google without having done any sort of public accounting or CPA type of work. When I would go and meet with other corporate controllers at these sort of various roundtable meetings, I was the only person like me there. And that is a byproduct of working with people who valued more than just, in, this, in, in my example, accounting expertise, and were willing to think outside the box. Um, it wasn't that they didn't value 
accounting expertise is that they were looking for, and this is typical of any Google job, they're looking for like people that have to be really good at like three, four, five different things so that you can add value in a lot of different ways. So that was transformative. Obviously making a lot of great, great friends there. You spend 14 years someplace, you're going to meet a lot of great friends and get exposed to a lot of people from like different backgrounds. I loved, loved, loved all the people I worked with from other countries. It was very much a big multinational corporation, people from all over. I got to, to travel to these different offices and work closely with people from other countries. That was just wonderful and helped build my perspective. And then obviously financially, that was transformative as well. And so to help me get that much farther ahead financially, I like to say I was ahead before I started at Google just because I was diligent about saving my money and spending less than I make. Google obviously accelerated that to another level because you know I was there before we went public and then I had done well working my way, way up to vice president there, helped me get ahead. Jim, tell us, what's your relationship with money like today? You know, we have enough money that it pays for the things that we need. I don't worry too much about it. I very much stay on top of our sort of money situation, but I no longer dwell on trying to build our portfolio sort of as big as possible because I kind of felt like, you know what, we sort of hit the proverbial lottery and that we're doing well financially. So that's good enough for me. And it pales in comparison to the other stuff. You know, my wife had a double lung transplant three years ago. And so that was really scary period for us. Post-transplant, there's been lots of ups and downs, but generally she's doing like really well. And it's kind of the classic second lease on life. And so you kind of go through that stuff and, and you're like, a lot of this money stuff starts to feel like, who cares? You know, like, you know what I'm excited about is that we're able to go for a five mile hike in the hills. And that's something that she couldn't even do 20 years ago. So I still have a lot of my mother in me, you know, you don't, you just, you still don't take your eye off the ball. I still, every Friday afternoon, I peek at my credit card bills to make sure that there was nothing fraudulent going on there or that I can identify every charge on there. Those are just sort of the habits that we build up over time. Hey, Jim, congratulations. That is the best news about your wife and, you know, may her health continue. So that is great. It does put it all in perspective. What's one piece of money wisdom that you would like to share with our listeners that maybe we haven't covered in this conversation yet? Sure. I mean, obviously there's saving for a rainy day, but the unknowns in life is important. You just never know. And if you kind of consider that Nobody makes it through life unscarred. Everyone's going to deal with stuff you know, in your life. So if you can at least have some money set aside to help you get through that, that will just make it that much less difficult to make it through that stuff. Beyond that, when I think about the biggest money mistakes I made in my life, the common theme was trying to chase outsized return, trying to outperform the market or trying to chase higher yields on stuff. and Nine times out of 10, it just did not pay off or I had some sort of regret or another about that versus just channeling your inner Warren Buffett and just go, you know, bet on the US economy, rely on compounding, let compounding be your friend. It's like magical and be patient. It will pay off for you. Jim, tell us, what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? It will be with Anybody who wants to talk about it with me, I love talking about it. I found I have friends who, when we get together, they're like excited to talk about 
money stuff, I think, because like nobody else wants to talk about it with them. And I love talking about any sort of money related subject. And like the two of you, I sort of advocate for people having those conversations. It's empowering. I get it. It can be dull sometimes or dry. Some you start getting into the specifics. I don't expect you to get as excited about some of this stuff as I would, but that's okay. I tend to want to challenge people more about like values and their priorities and and those sorts of things because the other stuff will take care of itself. Jim, thank you so much for talking money with us today. This was such a great conversation. We appreciate you sharing your and your family's stories with us. And I think you've really highlighted the importance of figuring out priorities, figuring out what matters most and making money decisions accordingly and allowing money to help reduce stress. So thank you for that. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Jim. Keep being the raging optimist. Will do. Hey, Sandy, that was a great conversation with Jim Rocco. I'm smiling after hearing him talk. He was so such an optimist. He saw the positive side of everything. I agree, Cammie. And I thought he was funny he was and funny. so interesting. And he had such great money tales that he shared with us, beginning with how fluent he became in money conversations as a result of living and growing up in the house that he grew up in, where his mom and siblings encouraged a lot of money conversation. I love the idea of sitting around the breakfast table, lunch table, dinner table, and it sounds like they were always having some sort of money conversation and that that created this really confident guy who he's, he sort of assumed everybody had these conversations around their dinner tables. Cammy, it's making me remember the conversation we had with Zabrine Khan, who also had money conversations around her family table. And I think both of these situations are a great reminder that talking about money with your family can be hugely beneficial for everyone, especially for the younger siblings who have an opportunity like Jim and also Sabrina did of learning from their older siblings and seeing what money conversations and money decisions that come up through life as people move through college and beyond. Losing his dad at a young age, his mom had to step up and instill these great values. And one thing that really resonated with me is that they had saved and they were prepared to help Jim get to college and pay for the basics, but he had to work for other things that he was interested in doing. And that created that good intention or, or the desire and he had to put in some some effort to achieve those things. Jim was really focusing on how important the basics of financial planning are. So saving money, being intentional about spending money, making sure that you're spending less than you make, budgeting, avoiding chasing outsized returns. That's something that's come up in prior Money Tales conversations as well. Those are all really, really important concepts. I like that he emphasized that he got to college and no one was talking about this. And it just seemed for him, it was breathing air. Like, how can you not be budgeting and thinking about not spending more than you have or what you needed to do to work to achieve the money to spend what you wanted to spend? Like How, how were his friends not thinking about that? Cammie, were you thinking about those things in college? <laughs> okay, fair enough. I wasn't. I wish I was. 
Okay. Full disclosure for anybody listening. I wish I was. Why wouldn't you? Right. That's just the basics. And I, I think that's coming back to why I think money tales is so important in these conversations because we should have been. It's, uh, and I, I want to see us educating our next generation of children to be talking about this more. And so for anybody who's interested, we did spend some time in the Amanda Copeland interview at Money Tales. We did talk about budgeting at the end in the financial insight. So please reference that. Absolutely. And by the way, when I was in college, I did a little bit of budgeting. My parents gave me sort of a, a spending allowance once a month. So I had to make sure that those dollars stretched. And then at some point, I had to get a job and started having to cover my own incidental costs, which is another good exercise in budgeting, but nothing like uh, what Jim was prepared to do and, and actually did in college. Kudos to your parents, though. That's great. So, Sandy, Jim talked about, or through his stories, he really made me think about planning for the unexpected, or in their situation, maybe something expected. But this is such a hard concept because it's unexpected. So what, when you're working with clients or, you know, recommendations to listeners, how do you plan for the unexpected? It's something that comes up a lot. It's part of our job, Cami, of making sure that we're doing holistic planning for our clients, not only focused on how they want life to play out and what they want it to look like, but also thinking about what happens if some of these unexpected things occur. And Usually unexpected is really untimely, right? We all are going to die at some point, but we don't know when. And I think in Jim and his family's case, they've been planning around his wife's health conditions. And so their unexpected has a little more expectation associated with it. And so Jim provided some hints about how they've been planning for it, right? They were thinking through how close a home they were purchasing was going to be to the hospital because they envisioned that they might need to be at the hospital frequently. They also talked with each other about what the implication would be if his wife wasn't able to contribute income to the family anymore and they wanted to be prepared around that. So I think those are two good examples of, of Jim and his wife doing some contingency planning and their financial planning. And to answer your question more broadly, Cami. What we do with clients is we take a look at, well, what happens in the case of a couple if one party were to die unexpectedly? What are the resources that would be available and what would the goals and needs from those resources look like for the surviving family members? And if there is a shortfall, we might look to something like life insurance to plug in we look at our clients' cash reserves, making sure that there is money available either in a cash balance somewhere or liquidity available pretty quickly to help fund unexpected events that come up. And we've talked in prior money tales about emergency reserves and why that's important. We also take a look at clients' health insurance policies. What if there was a health catastrophe is there enough money to cover the out-of-pocket maximums? If someone has health challenges, it might lead to making different decisions about health insurance policies than someone who is totally healthy. So there's a lot of different ways to do it, but I do think it is important to not forget about the contingency planning. It kind of goes along with what Jim was talking about in the conversation, saving money for a rainy day. If you can think through 
potential scenarios and plan for the possibility of them in advance, I think it just really helps lessen the stress that occurs when something really untimely does happen in life. Sandy, thank you so much for sharing those thoughts. I think it's really helpful when we think about contingency planning and what we can do. And there's there's some levers to pull and be thoughtful about that Jim highlighted and you brought to life there. So thank you for that. Absolutely. And one of the things that I think is most thrilling about the story that Jim told is that his wife has beaten the odds and that they have made some really conscious decisions about spending time together. Jim, in the conversation, talked about not pursuing certain career opportunities to go abroad because that would take him away from his family and they needed to be here together. And he also talked about how he's quasi-retired so that he could spend time with his family and really take advantage of the ability to be together with all four of them. He is an intentional guy doing some amazing things and let's celebrate the success and wish them continued health and happiness. For sure. Cami, I love doing these Money Tales conversations with you and our guests. It's so fun. We really appreciate our Money Tales listeners for being here with us every week. Thanks to those of you who are listening in. Yeah, thank you, Sandy. And again, everyone, please, if you have a thought, a question, send us an email at podcasts at Asperient.com. And be sure to do everything you can to help share and spread Money Tales. We really appreciate it. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.